0: So, um, I believe this was last week. Last week, uh, Louis Giglio, who is a, uh, a prominent pastor, a pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, it's a mega church, thousands of people. Uh, Louis Giglio is actually the founder of uh, the Passion Movement, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, you know, those, those passion concerts that have been going on for like the past 20 plus years. He is the founder of this movement, and he uh, hosted a talk with uh, Lecrae, who is a, a hip-hop artist, who is a Christian, and uh, Dan Cathy, who is CEO of Chick-fil-A, and they hosted this talk about, um, you know, race. It was a, a discussion about race in light of kind of George Floyd and in light of the the protests and the things that were going on. And... Um I don't know if you've you've heard about this. You can you can find it and, you know, look it up on YouTube to find the full context. But I'm going to share a little bit of what Louis Giglio said about this. He was talking about race and he was talking about slavery at one point. And this is what he said. I'm just going to quote him. He said, we understand the curse that was slavery and we say that was bad. And when he says we, he means white people and he. Then he continued, he said, but we miss the blessing that it actually built the framework for the world that white people live in and lived in. And so a lot of people call this white privilege. And when you say those two words, it's like a fuse goes off for a lot of white people. They don't want someone telling them to check their privilege. If the phrase is the trip up, let's get over the phrase and get to the heart. Let's get down to what you want to call it. And I think a great thing for me is to call it white blessing. So just to, I'm sorry, this is, I mean, I don't, I can't, I, can't, I shouldn't be laughing at this because this is kind of horrific. But if you missed what he said, he essentially called slavery a blessing for white people. And then he said, instead of calling it white privilege, we should call it white blessing. Now, this was premeditated, mind you. He thought about this before this talk. He came in kind of with this terminology in mind. And I talk about race in a context where racial tension is as high as it's ever been in my lifetime. This prominent pastor of a church of thousands of people called white privilege, white blessing. To admittedly cater to the sensitivity of white people on this topic, now <clears throat> it's so, it's like it's kind of ridiculous, which is why I'm I can't I can't even like say it with a with a straight face because it's crazy. I'm bringing this up for a couple reasons. <clears throat> uh, the first reason is this: in light of the context that we're in, please know. That there are people that are this ignorant about race who are in prominent positions of Christian leadership in this country. Right? Louis Giglio is a very known pastor. He pastors a church of thousands of people. He's the founder of the Passion Movement. And he said this. And so we need to be aware so that we can take everything we hear out there with a grain of salt and check it against the Word of God. Like, seriously, we need to really check ourselves and and consider the thoughts that we have about this topic— Against God's word and against the God, this is why I'm, I'm so vigilant, and I'm like, I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot on this topic. But we really need to understand. Like, I think some of us don't understand the level, and many of us, obviously, we are, you know, we're we're not white. Many of us, uh, most of us in this church, are Asian American, and so, you know, our understanding may not be the same either of the black community or the white community, but I think we need to understand kind of the different views that are coming into this discussion because I think sometimes we don't understand it because we don't realize the perspectives that people are coming from. That's one. And so, look, get into the bloodline study. I really encourage you, if if you're thinking about it at all, even if you're not thinking about it, please, because we need to have a, a, a more biblical understanding of this but here's the second thing I wanna talk about is what happened after this, okay? So Louis Giglio made apologies on Twitter and Instagram, okay? So he, he posted videos, and, and, and look, by all accounts, and I, I, watched this, you know, I watched all this stuff, and he seemed very sincere. Okay. And, his, and his point like wasn't malicious, like what he was trying to say. He phrased it really bad, and I think he showed that he was ignorant on this matter. Like, should he have hosted a talk? No, I'm just gonna be straight up about that. To be honest, okay, and I'm not saying, and I, I don't want to say like all white people can't say anything about this. I think certainly, like John Piper and Tim Keller and like Matt Chandler and some others, like there are some white pastors of prominence who have like written books and who have like seriously studied and talked about themselves and tried to bring to light and have tried to say things to other white people about some of these things that are happening and and how we need to uncover some of this stuff in the gospel. But I think Louis Giglio revealed that he probably shouldn't have done this. Uh, He probably shouldn't do this in the future until he kind of learns more about it and educates himself. However, what I will say is he loves God. You know, he's a brother in Christ. He's a pastor. He has done things for the kingdom. But by many, many, many people on social media, he was canceled. Because of this. Okay, people did not accept his apology. His apology seemed real sincere, like, from my perspective. And I have no reason to believe that this guy is not, like, that this guy is some kind of malicious racist. Or he's, like, some white supremacist. or am like, no, I don't think there's any of that going on here. I think he kind of didn't know what he was talking about. He said some bad stuff he probably shouldn't have said. He definitely shouldn't have said. He made some mistakes. But, like, he's not, like, an evil guy. You know? And, and anybody who cares about what Louis Giglio says, by the way, is Christian. Like there's no secular people that's going to care what Louis Giglio has to say about this thing. They're, they're, these are Christians, and all these Christians, a lot of Christians, and some, you know some people forgave him, some people were willing to accept it, and many, many people were not. Now, that's part of our culture today. You know, cancel culture call out culture this is part of what is prominent in our culture and let me be frank i completely get the appeal of cancel culture of call out culture right because technology has kind of ruined us and we can't be human beings anymore and when you just see something on the internet it's not a person it's just a bunch of words and it's easy to be inhumane in the way that we deal with people and secondly obviously, it just feels good to be superior, right? Like when somebody says something stupid and they stick their foot in their mouth, it feels good to call them out and to be like, yeah, see, you don't know what you're talking about. That's easy, right? All you got to do is find somebody who is more ignorant than you on what on some topic. We're all ignorant about something right like we all got parts of our lives things we don't know about nobody knows everything about everything and it's very easy to just pick at people that don't know about something i'm not saying we shouldn't keep one another accountable i'm not saying that there shouldn't be you know time and space for that but this cancel culture see we don't i don't think we realize for many of us Christians, for many in the church, I don't think we realize how it has seeped into our DNA, how it has just become a part of us. Where we are waiting to pounce on people, this outrage, we are waiting for people to make mistakes so that we can point it out to them. How much, you know, to be frank, how much dumber they are than we are. How much smarter we are than they are. How much more moral we are. How much more biblical we are. How, how much more doctrinally sound we are. Is that Christian? Is cancel culture Christian? And I'll just say right now, no, it's not. Clearly, it's not. The, the culture of the church should not be built around canceling people nor should it be built around calling people out. And, you know, that is way more prominent. That terminology is actually in the church now. That is a prominent terminology in the church. People think that they are doing a great service by calling people out. Is that, though, what the culture of the church is meant to embody? I'll say no. I'm sure by the title of this message, you can figure it out that we are meant to embody a culture of compassion, compassion culture. That should be the culture of the church. That should be what the church is about and what we are fighting for. So why? Why does that matter? How do we get there? That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to um, Luke Luke 15, Luke 15, and, um, you know, we're going to be looking at uh, the parable of the lost son, you know, the prodigal son, uh, but we're not going to go through all of it. Uh, I'm going to summarize parts of it and, and, and parts of this, this whole chapter. But I want us to look at the context. So we're going to start here in Luke 15. Luke 15, 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. You know, him is Jesus, obviously. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, referring to Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, the the tax collectors and the sinners, how dare Jesus have this, you know, it says he receives them, he eats with them, eating In, in ancient Near Eastern culture. This would be a very intimate kind of act. You eat with your friends, basically. And they're saying, Jesus is friends with these sinners. How can he be friends with these sinners? So they're indicting him this way. And Jesus, knowing this, He tells three stories, right? He starts out with a story about one shepherd and a hundred sheep. I mean, well, one shepherd and a hundred sheep, and one of those hundred sheep gets lost. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 behind, goes after the one, And when he finds the one, he actually phrases this in a question, in terms of a rhetorical question. He says, who who among you wouldn't leave the 99 in the open field? Go after the one. And when you find the one, weren't you going to bring the one back? Carrying him on your shoulders, rejoicing. Look, I found the lost sheep. And he says, in the same way, the heavens rejoice more over one lost person who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. And then he tells another story. But a woman, a widow, 10 coins, loses one of the 10 coins. Isn't she going to search the whole house to find that one coin? And when she finds the one coin, isn't she going to call all her friends and say, you know, call all her friends over and say, I found the coin. One out of 10. 10% of my wealth, I lost it. I found it and rejoice and says, same thing in heaven. Over one sinner who repents. And then tells a third story. A man had two sons. Right? There was a man who had two sons. Now this is a little bit more elaborate story. It's a drawn out story. Just to summarize, we're not going to go through the whole thing. But the younger son comes up to the father. Says, I want my inheritance. Younger son would be entitled to one third of the inheritance. Older son would get the double portion, two thirds. So this younger son says, give me the one third right? Takes his inheritance. Now this will be a slap in the face to the father, right? Essentially because an inheritance is something that you receive when the father dies. But he's saying, basically, I wish you were dead. I want to go out on my own. Forget you. Goes out. Goes to a far off country. Squanders his wealth in what the Bible calls reckless living. Don't know exactly what that is. It's implied in the end that he spent it on probably booze and women. Then he's Hits rock bottom, feeding pigs, which would be terrible in Jewish culture. And not only is he feeding pigs, he's hungry. He doesn't even want to eat the pigs, though. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's how bad it is. He hits rock bottom. He says, what am I doing? I should go back to my father and say, I, I can't be your son. I'm not, I don't deserve to be your son. I just want to be like a hired servant of yours. So he goes back. He was at rock bottom. He said nobody cared for him. Nobody, nobody felt anything for him. Nobody pitied him. Probably because they knew that this kid came from a rich family and he got this inheritance and he himself screwed it all up. In fact, the Bible says, and just in, in, in days, days later. And we're gonna jump, we're gonna go ahead and jump to the climax of the passage. He's coming home. Right? Luke 15 20. It says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can finish his statement, which is, which is make me like a hired servant because I'm you know, i not worthy to be called. That was his plan if you look in the previous. He says, that's my plan. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like a hired servant. But before he can even say that in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, here's point number one that we must grasp from this text. Our Father, our heavenly Father, waits in compassion, not judgment. He waits in compassion. Not judgment, and and actually what I would say is, because this is what the Bible says, that mercy triumphs over judgment. He is more waiting to give mercy than he is to deliver judgment. Now when the the son has a plan, he says, I'm going to come home and I'm going to work off my debt. That's his plan. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I screwed that up. I screwed that up myself by telling my dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I don't care about this. I want to go out on my own. And when the father sees him on the horizon, when he sees him from a great distance, he runs to him. He kisses him. Ancient Near Eastern patriarchs don't do that. Much like Asian fathers, don't do that. Now, what is Jesus doing in this story? Jesus wants the crowd. Now, remember, he's telling this story to a crowd. There's a bunch of sinners, quote-unquote sinners, and there's a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, and he's he wants this crowd to understand the heart of God, that God the Father, our Father, he runs. He runs to his Son and embraces him. He breaks all the normal behavioral conventions he abandons what he is you know, his, what he is supposed to do his, to be stoic or perhaps to be angry this son has embarrassed him gives him the best robe a robe reserved only for noble guests he gives him a ring for his finger probably a signet ring granting him the authority which he essentially gave up to leave this household Gives him sandals, which were a luxury, something servants did not wear. Kills the fattened calf. That only happened at big parties, the big celebrations. This father wasn't waiting in anger. Right? He wasn't waiting for his son to come home so that he could pounce on him and be like, yeah, see, you went out on your own and you failed. And now you come crawling back home to me. No, he was waiting in compassion he takes the harm upon himself and he says that loss i will eat it now sometimes it's hard to believe that we have a father like this because we haven't perhaps had fathers like this my father my father like many asian fathers he he never ran my my i don't remember my dad running for any reason <laughs> okay i mean he's He's like Darth Vader, man. He just walks menacingly, right? Like, that's, that's my father, at least what I remember. And he spoke authoritatively to me, and I ran. If my father called me, I ran. Not to hug him, you know, to, to receive my, my, my punishment usually, when, it was when my father spoke, that was authority in, in the household that I grew up in. And when I read the passage, I imagine, what if I did this to my father? It's crazy now, actually, because now I think, what if one of my sons did this to me? right what if what if my youngest son what if my younger son came up to me michael would never do this josiah maybe one day he come up to me and he's like he's like dad i wish you were dead give me the inheritance right now if this happened in real life first of all i would be like son there's no inheritance i don 't know what you 're talking about i 'm a church planner, and your wife you know your mom's a, a middle school teacher i don 't know where you think the inheritance is coming from, right? I guess take the accord, I guess like it's not even running right now, but you know whatever right like I, 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 let's just let 's humor this story though for the sake of for the sake of this illustration let's say there was some kind of inheritance. I give him the inheritance he drops out of you know he's, he's old he drops out of school. He goes, he, he goes to Vegas, he wastes the whole thing. His girlfriend dumps him, you know, he, he's got nothing, he loses his job. He comes crawling back home. Now, what am I gonna do when I see him in the distance? Right? Like, am, am I gonna run to him? Yeah, am I gonna feel relief that he's alive and okay? Of course, of course I will. Am I gonna be happy he's home? Of course I will. Am I gonna throw him a party? <laughs> I don't think so, right? I think there's gonna be a few. I told you so, and I think I'm probably gonna hold it over him for at least a decade. You know, remember the time you ran away from home and failed on your own? Yeah, maybe you should listen to mom and dad next time. That's that's probably in my in my sinfulness. In my imperfect fathering, that's what I would do, but that's not what the father in the story does. He runs to his son, who said, forget you, Dad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live on my own. I don't need you. And days later, hits rock bottom and realizes he has nothing and, and, and is begging to be a servant. Your father may not have been that kind of father. And that doesn't make him a bad man or a bad father. But know this. You have a father that is that kind of father. God is that kind of father. So let me say now, if you've been in the faraway country of misery, he's waiting for you to return home, not so he can pounce on you in anger, but so that he can shower you with compassion, with love, and with grace, and with mercy. He sees the struggle you're facing. He he, He just wants to see you in the distance. He's not even waiting for you to make it all the way home. He just wants to see you in the distance. He's waiting to run to you. And when you want to say make me like a hired servant, God he won't even let you finish that sentence. He'll say we're we're going to celebrate. Right? That that's the that's the compassion of the father that we have. Here's point number 2. And we're going to see this with the older son. Okay, but if we don't share his compassion, we don't love his mercy. So let's read on here, verse twenty-five. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now this older son shows what a dysfunctional relationship with God looks like. Right? I mean, you see it in what he says. The younger sh- the younger son... Reveals the sin we can all agree with. It's kind of the obvious sin, right? Oh, this guy wants his... Ta- you know, like, he's, he's kind of the bad guy in the story, obviously, right? Like, everyone reads this and is like, oh, yeah, that guy's a sinner. You know, much like the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. You know, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. right? The kind of bad people of society. It's the obvious bad people, the criminals, the drug dealers, But the older son reveals a less obvious sin. It's this, it's this discontentment with the father. Right? He says, I served you all these years. I never disobeyed a command. And he says that like he deserves something for it. Right? Like it's a right. Like that's what he suffered. Oh, I never got to disobey. I had to serve you all this time. I suffered because I served you all this time. Like, I've just been doing church all this time. I've been serving so hard. Suffering for you. What do I get for What do I have to show for it? I didn't get any inheritance. I didn't get a party. He, he reveals his entitlement. He doesn't want an inheritance. He wants a wage. He wants what he thinks he deserves. The older son wants he says, this is what's crazy about it. he wants a system of judgment not one of mercy that's what that's what he desires he's like no i want him to get what he deserves because he does. like this son of yours he doesn't say my brother right like my baby brother home no he says this son of yours kind of like what adam said about eve right the woman that you put here to be with me He says he should get what he deserves, and I should get what I deserve. What happens when we relate to God in this dysfunctional way? So a couple things, right? First, it separates you from sinners. You are different than sinners. Now, we may all define sinners differently, because for some, it may be the criminals and the drug dealers and the prostitutes. But for some, it might be the politicians. For some, it might be the conservatives. For some, it might be the liberals. It might be the lazy. It might be the protesters. You know, like we all now have our own definitions of who are the sinners. Who are the ones that we are better than. Who are the ones that deserve what they get and we deserve what, what we should get. Do you feel separated from the sinners because you're better than them? You know, some things we have to ask ourselves. Do we often find that people around us are like ignorant? Do we find them ignorant? Do we find them selfish? Do we find them evil? Can we not imagine these people, those people as friends? How can you be friends with those people? Oh, A Trump supporter? Are you serious? How can you be friends with those people? Do you use this? this What is this emoji? You know, the, the, the hand on the head, right? Like, do you use that emoji a lot? Like on social media, or maybe not on social media, just in your own head, in your own mind. That's what you think a lot. Are you doing, you know, shaking your head, SMH a lot? Is that what you're about? Because like, man, what's going on? People are so dumb out there. That's kind of the older brother mentality, right? The Pharisee, really. It's like, yeah, I'm so much better. I'm so much more cultured. I'm so much more aware. Here's a litmus test. When you watch sin happen, ugly sin, serious sin, do you feel mainly disgust or compassion? that's a pretty tough question for many of us, I think. If Jesus were here today, who would he hang out with? Drug dealers? Exotic dancers? Organized criminals? Yeah, probably. But also the homeless? The mentally ill? Single mothers? Absent fathers? Kids in foster care? Refugees? Minority communities? But also, white supremacists? corrupt cops. And many of us would think, Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? How can you hang out with them? They're sinners. It separates you from the sinners. And second, this dysfunctional relationship with God that the older son has makes us blame right this son of yours same thing adam did with eve that's it's a blame right and who's it actually blaming when we blame our circumstances like do you find yourself in this kind of why me situation like why me how come this bad stuff always happens to me and how come the good stuff always happens to people who don't deserve it like how do, those, how do those people? They don't deserve that. How come they get that and I get this? This is my lot in life. From the big to the small, from the macro to the micro, if it's in soci- whether it's in society or it's just in your workplace, there's always these undeserving people who get these things that I deserve and I get the things that these people deserve. Now, when you say that, do you know who you're really blaming? Because you're not really blaming the system, and you're not really blaming your boss. You're blaming God. As God, why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? I know. I do this. You know, when when you are functioning in terms of work and wages and merit, you become a blamer to the core and you start blaming stuff, wife, kids, circumstances, for my own emotional discontent. I know that when that's happening to me, that's a warning sign that I'm operating under achievement and not under grace. What's revealed in the older son is if we don't share the compassion of the father, then we don't perhaps know the love and mercy of the father. Now here's point three. And it's important because Jesus doesn't do this often in scripture. But Jesus has compassion for the Pharisee too often in scripture what we find for the pharisee is not a kind word is not a tender word it's a harsh word but know that in his heart right god in his heart has compassion for the pharisee too and he has in this text a tender word quickly five things he does right the father came out Now this is a situation, right? The son comes home from far away, whole family's together, they're throwing a party, right? This is like Thanksgiving dinner, everyone's together, and somebody in your family's not cool with somebody in your family, right? And that guy's just, you know, one of the uncles, right, is just out there and is like, I ain't going in there if he's there. Has this ever happened to you and everyone's at the table? It's a little bit awkward and somebody's just not coming and they've locked themselves in the bedroom and they're just like throwing a tantrum. This is a grown man, but throwing a tantrum, right? And so what has to happen? The father, head of the household, has to go out there. And the fact that he goes, he goes out. It says he came out. Again, sometimes, like, would we do this would we say, hey, you you better get in here. You better come in here. Now, he can do that, but he doesn't do that. He says, I'll go out there. So he goes out. And secondly, it says the father entreats him. Now, that word is, is chosen precisely in distinction to commanding. He could command him, right? And the son even said, I've never disobeyed one of your commands. Right? And he could just go on that and say, like, okay, well, I'm going to command you now, get your butt in here, and have dinner with the rest of the family because we're all going to celebrate that your brother's home. But he doesn't. It says he entreats him. It's right? so a similar word is used in, in, in uh, Philemon 1, to 8-9. I'm just going to read it for you. The text is not going to be up on the screen, but it says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Right? So he's saying, I could command you, but I'm going to appeal to you. The same Greek word is used there for appeal and entreat. And that's what God does. He appeals to him. Three, he calls him child son it's a you know the the translation is son but the word actually the greek word is technon which technically is child not son and he's kind of saying like you know it's like when you talk to kids right again this it's it's these sons are probably grown but he's he's kind of saying like buddy you know like when i talk to my kids i'll be like hey what's up bud you know what's up buddy You guys actually know, I don't know if you'll remember this, but there was this, my buddy, like this, this, this toy when I was young, it was like my buddy, my buddy, you would like, and it was this little, it was like a doll. It was like a child sized doll that kids would play with. And when Micah was young, I used to sing that song to him from this commercial as if he was like this little, like my, my real life doll, you know, that I was playing with. And because I had this affection for him as a son that I didn't know before. And it's almost like God is appealing to this, you know, the father in the story is appealing to this affection, saying like, like child. Fourth, he says, you're always with me. And fifth, he says, all that is mine is yours. The main point of this parable is not the response of the younger son or the older son, right? It's not, hey, we should be repentant like the younger son, and it's not, don't be unlike the older son. The point of the parable is to show the character of the father. What the father cares about. God is exceedingly compassionate and delights in the repentance of lost sinners and so should we isn't that the core of what the church is supposed to be about the repentance of lost sinners that we are compassionate like our father that that is our desire for people to come to repentance not to cancel people and to just call out people to alienate people to go to war with people to prove that we're better than people. No, it is to have this compassion. That's that's God's heart for lost sinners. God wants the whole crowd. The sinners who feel like they can't be forgiven and the Pharisees who feel like they're above these people. And that these people are beyond forgiveness. There is no beyond forgiveness to God. One of the greatest tests of whether you love mercy is whether you feel mercy toward sinners. You can tell whether or not you're a Pharisee. Based on whether or not your heart is moving to rescue and woo sinners, to entreat sinners, to appeal to sinners with the gospel, gross sinners. And make no mistake, sin is disgusting infinitely more than we know. But one, pa- one pastor I heard put it this way, but for those who know that they have sinned themselves into the porch of merit or the far country of misery, they want to draw people in, not push people away. You guys know when you're like a fan of something? If you've been a fan of something for a long time and then people start becoming a fan of that thing that you've been a fan of for a long time and you want to be like, Oh, you're going to come on now? Like, you're trying to jump on the bandwagon now? I've been here since, you know, I've been here since 03, right? You're trying to jump on now? I've been here since 95, okay? Like, I, I, if you didn't suffer in the hard times like I did, then you don't deserve to be a fan now, you know? And then there's those people who are like, hey, hey, come on board. You know, the more the merrier. If you're that first kind of, look, I don't care what kind of fan you are, okay? But when it comes to Christianity, if you're that first kind of person who's like, oh, you're trying to, now you're trying to come onto this bandwagon. Now you're trying to care about these things. Now it suddenly matters to you. If you care more about that than you do about repentance, about people coming to repentance. And when the one lost sinner comes home, Like think about the difference between oh you're trying to come now and you're the one sheep out of a hundred that came back and there's a party in heaven now. Like I'm going to call all my friends and celebrate now because you're the one out of the ten lost coins. You're the one out of the two lost sons who came home. We will never shame and blame people into righteousness it will never happen and just to be clear let me be clear about this there was a perfect law and a perfect system for its time it was god's law given to god's people god himself designed the law and the system of law and government that the israelites were under in the old testament Like, why do we think we're going to get a better law and system than that? God Himself designed it. He Himself was king. The problem wasn't the system, it was hearts. We couldn't keep it because our hearts were broken. We should be going after the hearts. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to reform law. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to have as much justice like for the kingdom of God to go as far as it can go, to reach as wide as it can reach in this world. But we got to know, right? That was never the real solution. Transformation of hearts is what we should be after. Do not be, and hear me, don't be less urgent. Don't be less urgent about making an impact in the world or in society, but be far more urgent about the gospel going forth to the community, to the city, to the country, to the nations. Like, we we have to actually care about this. For it is what God cares about. Let me, I'm going to close with just a quick couple application points. One, learn to love God's mercy. Enjoy God's compassion. If you find yourself walking in the way of the Pharisee, embracing cancel culture and outrage culture and looking down on all the ignorant people around you or the annoying people around you or the people just can't get it together like you have it together, often thinking, why are they so blessed and I so cursed? Just sit in this text for a while. Child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Like Let that sink in for a little bit. Before you get crazy about what's going on in your life and what's going on in the world, sit in this text. Child, child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That is God's word to you. Embrace that text. Meditate on that text until it seeps into the deepest part of your heart. Love that text. Memorize it. Go back to it. Learn to love it. Learn to enjoy what you are given as an heir more than what you deserve as a wage. Two. Embrace compassion culture, not cancel culture, not call out culture, not outrage culture. Compassion is hard, right? It's not natural. Sympathetic concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others is not natural. It's not natural. Of course, because all of us, we're going to think about ourselves. What's natural is to judge. What's natural is to to think of solutions. What's natural is to... um, You know, it's the opposite of giving someone the benefit of the doubt. It's assuming the worst in people. It's natural both because we often, it's hard for us to get out of our own perspective and secondly, it makes us feel good to feel superior. But know this. Compassion culture is so much greater and better. Jesus Christ in all of his glorious freedom chose a life of compassion right isn't that what jesus did when he was on this earth like he rarely raged he did you know and there were times where you know of course yeah he did he rebuked he rebuked the religious leaders he rebuked the pharisees he got mad in the temple But look at the vast majority of his ministry. He hurt with those who hurt. He touched the lepers, the sick. He ate with tax collectors, the exploitatively wealthy. He went out of his way to speak with and commend these salacious women. He offered forgiveness to both the law enforcers who crucified him and the criminals who were crucified with him. Jesus, in all his glorious freedom, chose this life of compassion. He wasn't coerced into it. He wasn't forced into it. He, in all his glorious freedom as God, chose that for us, both so that we could embrace it and experience it, to know that whenever we get close to home, God runs to us and embraces us and loves us, and to know that when someone else That when we draw someone else home and they come home, that we can celebrate that, that there is a joy and a delight that builds upon itself as we embrace that compassion, that we can embody it just as he did. Let's do that together. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that mercy triumphs over judgment, God. That though all of us are, deser- are deserving of, of judgment, because of Christ, we can find, we can embrace, we can enjoy your mercy. That we can be called your children. That we can be with you that we can enjoy you, that we can delight in you, that we don't have to live utterly outraged and frustrated and 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 clawing and fighting for every inch of superiority we can find in the world, that we don't have to live under this oppressive... System of achievement, God, that we can in you, Jesus, because of what Christ has done on the cross, because of the perfect life, the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death, because of the powerful resurrection of Christ, we can enjoy a free life of love and compassion and mercy and grace. Help us, God. Help us. Heal us, God. Teach us your ways that we may follow you. We thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.